This one is episode 178. Is your sleep broken? Do you wake up tired? Do you wake up with brain fog? Do you struggle to go to sleep? Or do you even wake up multiple times every single night? If any of this is you, then you've probably gotten to a point where you decided that it's just the way my sleep is, and I guess I'll blame my health issues on my sugar addiction. The reality is that broken sleep leads to all sorts of problems with the body and makes weight loss a really challenging endeavor because your body has its core reference point totally out of whack. So if you want to start repairing your sleep so that you can lose weight, wake up feeling full of energy and get back in control of your life, then this episode was made for you. Let's get into it. Welcome to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. You've tuned in because you want to start taking your health seriously so you don't, well, get sick and die. Here we talk all things health, nutrition and human optimization. Let's jump into it with your host and resident scientist, Maddie Lansdowne. What's up, my healthy friends? Welcome back to another episode of the show in 2022. It's my mission to coach 300 people to get control of their emotional eating so they can lose weight and actually keep it off without counting calories or eating rabbit food. And a big part of that holistic solution, which most people should be moving towards when it comes to weight loss, when it comes to managing their health, when it comes to recovering from a disease, is today's topic, which is sleep. A lot of people have really broken sleep. Before I get into that though, I want to share I want to share a fun fact. You may or may not have heard about this, but for a good few hundred years in history, uh, people used to be scared of tomatoes. They were scared of tomatoes and they were actually nicknamed poison apples uh, because they used to basically kill people and people would eat these um, in Europe and people would die and so everyone was like, These are obviously deadly. They're bright red because they're deadly. It's a warning sign. Stop, don't eat it. (laughs) Um, But the interesting thing that they discovered was, as it turns out, it was just a bit of a misunderstanding, right? Because wealthy people in Europe at the time, they used to use plates at the dinner table made of pewter. Uh, to serve their food. So they'd put the food on the plate, they'd put this, they'd put the tomatoes, and usually they'd cut the tomato up, obviously. So you've got the, the juicy, you know, the juices of the tomatoes seeping all over the place and being absorbed. Um, and the interesting thing about pewter back in the day, and now really, um, is that these plates contain high amounts of lead. Now, if there's one thing that we can all agree on, it's that high amounts of lead are really going to mess your day up (laughs) to the point you might die. (laughs) Lead poisoning is very, very deadly. And so, yeah, it was about 200 years until the end of the 19th century that um, people avoided these tomatoes. It turns out it was lead, lead all along. Um, And I guess as well, the reason that I sort of jumped over to this fun fact was because it's it's another example of causation and correlation, right? Is that just because things are, are connected doesn't mean that, or it looks like they're connected, doesn't mean that they necessarily are. So, in this instance, obviously, we're blaming sickness and death on the tomatoes. And actually, as we all know, most people like tomatoes, unless you've got a, you know, serious nightshade allergy or issue, that... Yeah, if you take out the, the, the middleman in this story, the plate, actually humans and tomatoes can be friends forever. <laughs> I love tomatoes. Oh, my parents grow tomatoes and they have my whole life and there's nothing quite like a homegrown tomato. The flavor, the smell, it's so rich. But the reason that I wanted to bring this up is because with weight loss, with disease, with gut health, with all of these problems that we have in our lives, even with managing relationships, often due to marketing and you know all of the mainstream like it's this simple or here is the answer you've been looking for or you know insert overly simplified response to extremely complex problem uh that's what often what happens and when we're talking about weight loss and when we're talking about you know getting healthy in any regard even if you don't have weight to lose or you're not too worried about where your body weight's at i'm sure there's things that you want to just feel better right and often in this space it just gets blamed on food 
It's just the nutritional component. And if we look at the way that modern science and medicine thinks, it is a very materialistic thing. And it's like, what can I, you know, it's a very kind of masculine thinking, right? Obviously, you know, if you're a man, you like to fix problems by practically doing something about it, like buying flowers or fixing the door or, you know, physically doing something in time and space, which really matches the way that Western medicine thinks. Um, And however, if you are a woman, you probably are familiar in more situations than not, in being like, actually, I don't need anything to be fixed. I just need to just have the experience, figure out the core of the problem and, you know, maybe even just sit with the emotions, just create some space and then move past that moment. Now, it's similar here, is that it's not always food. Food is not always going to fix the problem. And you could be doing the perfect things with your food, the physical material thing of just like, oh, fix it with food, which I think is a great catchphrase and I've been using that for years. However, that's only part of the problem. There's another piece that isn't so physical, isn't so material in its solution to contributing to this and it's sleep. And and many people have broken sleep and if you sleep in a city, it's highly likely you have broken sleep. If you sleep in lots of places, it's highly likely you have broken sleep. Uh, And by broken sleep, I don't just mean you wake up in the middle of the night. I mean, there's a range of things that could be going on with your sleep. Not getting enough, right? You're not getting enough sleep. You might be waking up multiple times during the night. You might also be in a situation where You wake up to go to the toilet multiple times a night, which can be a sign of all sorts of things. Again, a lot of people would blame that on just water intake through the day. But if you have really low water intake and you're still waking up at night to do that, we might be looking at diabetes. You know, there's there's lots of possibilities that are going on there. So, there's with your sleep being, you know, potentially broken, we need to obviously fix it. So, my question is, do you not get enough sleep? Are you getting less than seven and a half to nine hours of sleep of night? Are you someone that has boasted that you can run full steam ahead on just five hours a night? Are you in a situation where you have not actively recovered your sleep since your kids were in their young years, since they were waking you up, you know, now that they can sleep themselves probably too many hours because they're teenagers now? (laughs) Or, you know, whether they're at a stage whether they're sleeping consecutively most nights for a full eight, nine, ten hours. Um, Have you not used that time to recover your sleep back to where it was? Are you still waking up multiple times as if you're going to feed or as if you're going to, you know, sort out a wet bed situation or whatever it might be? Um, Or maybe you haven't recovered from night shift or maybe you have night shift and it's like, ah, my sleep's broken for all of the reasons. (laughs) So, first up, As you know, I bring the real talk. Here's the real talk. We're not going to fix this solution overnight. We need a system. We need a strategy. And most of all, we need commitment from you to doing this over the long term. Now, there are a very small proportion of people, a tiny amount of people that that thrive on less than seven and a half hours sleep. And that number is, in fact, so low, statistically speaking, that you're more likely to be struck by lightning. So, yes, you might be one of those people, but in my experience, every time I parrot that little fun fact, every single person I ever speak to says, oh, I must be in that tiny demographic. (laughs) And that's because so many people have broken sleep for so long and then the one night that they do get 10 hours to themselves for change, they're like, I can't sleep. And they just qualified themselves of someone that has broken sleep. Or what really happened is they said, oh, I just don't sleep that long. (laughs) So, we're going to talk in this episode about people that need to fix that and and some stuff that might be going on. We've got five things. Five things. And this is not an exhaustive list. This is just five that I think are super important for you to hear right now today whilst you're listening to me in your ear holes. So, let's do it. We are going to kick off with number one to fix your sleep. Reduce your cortisol. Okay, cortisol is the stress hormone, right? And most people are living insanely stressed lives, overly stressed, I would say, even if you're a chill person. If you live in the Western world, it's likely you have adopted priorities in a lifestyle that means you are stressed far too often. We're in this world where advertising, marketing, social media, what your friends are doing, like we just have access to so much information about other people in the world uh, that we just feel like a failure all the time. And so, We're constantly stressed, not good enough, not fast enough, not rich enough, not sexy enough, not committed enough, not loyal enough, not, you know, present enough, not good at my job enough, not 
etc. insert belief system that's created and perpetuated by the society we live in. That stresses us out, right? It triggers all of our pain and, and our problems and just makes us feel really deficient. And it means that our cortisol goes up. We're stressed because we're always feeling like we're behind in every area of our life. And it's not only just the, an idea or a belief in our minds that causes stress, although that's a big part of it, and believing in uh, what stress means for us, uh, but also we've got physical causes of stress. Um, Meal timings uh, can cause stress. Work can cause stress. Uh, staring at screens all day causes stress in your body because this is unnatural to the body, to the human body, which is why we do our very best, and I'm wearing mine right now, uh, to, to protect ourselves from these screens, right? By having blue blockers. I got blue blockers on. It's the daytime and I've got them on because I've been sitting here for hours. We've got to do what we can to protect our bodies from this stress. Um, and the thing too about cortisol is when your cortisol's up is it actually forces your melatonin. So melatonin's your sleep hormone. Uh, it actually forces melatonin down. Uh, and, and when your cortisol is up, and if it's up too long, that can lead to sugar cravings, right? And particularly as we get more and more sleep deficient or tired throughout the day because it's further away from when we were last asleep, we get tireder, more tired, 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 and then... As we get tired, our rational and logical thinking goes down and therefore our cravings and insulin go up and kind of, you know, bounce around. And so then we end up after dinner or even just throughout the day having sugary snacks and it might even drive you to every night being like, I need something sweet after dinner. Is that you? Do you need something sweet after dinner? It's highly likely that it's related to a couple of things, but cortisol. And not just cortisol at that point in time, but the sustained experience of cortisol and stress throughout the day. So by the time you get to that point, your your adrenals are, and your your mind are burnt out, and it's like, oh, just give me something easy to solve the problem. Bam, chocolate. Bam, another glass of wine. Bam, all of this stuff, which then sends us down another rabbit hole of being like, oh, I shouldn't have done that. And then we insert the diet culture, going like, oh shit, I'm so useless. I suck at this. Tomorrow's gonna be different we lie awake staring at the ceiling because our broken our sleep is broken um and on the roundabout on the merry-go-round we go again for another day and then that day turns into a year and that year turns into a decade and then you find yourself listening to this episode interesting too is that people that have a midnight snack are definitely in this category you should not need a midnight snack um because one you're moving your system out of rest, digest and repair uh, and into cortisol, uh, a spiked cortisol by getting up and looking in the fridge and seeing the light. That tells your brain that it's morning. So instead of putting your body into a rest, digest and repair state because you're about to put food in, you're triggering your mind to think it's daytime and the cort your cortisol goes up in the day because you need a little bit of cortisol to actually get out of bed. So that's a problem too. And did you know the only reason they put a, a light in the refrigerator was because of nighttime snackers, right? It's, you know, take the light out of your fridge and use that as an indicator as to whether or not you should be opening the fridge or not. <laughs> if you need to pull your phone out to use the light, maybe we need to figure out some successful intermittent fasting so that your cravings are regulated in a healthy way. Um, the other thing to comment on too is it's not just sleep, but Cravings are regulated by micronutrient deficiencies. So, if you're at this point after dinner um, or particularly during the night, it's highly likely that you are deficient in protein throughout the day. Uh, you're not getting enough in. So, that's important to remember there as well. Or, or as well, there's another factor too, and I know that this happens for some people, is that midnight snacking can actually be a result of, um, it can be a side effect of contraindications to medications. That's rare, but um, it, it is a thing. Um, next is earthing. <laughs> Just kind of slipped straight into that. Uh, so re to reduce your cortisol, earthing. I know this sounds woo-woo to some people and you, you might not be ready to hear this, but there's, there's documentaries, there's loads of clinical research now. Um, it's a real thing. And that is earthing, putting your bare skin on Mother Earth, like on dirt, on grass, like walking out amongst the trees, doing a lap around, you know, the block and walking with barefoot on the nature strip. Putting your body on the earth allows you to download 
free radicals and neutralize free radicals. Free radicals are a result of stress in the body, a result of toxins, a result of um, just normal metabolism, but they do lots of damage and most people have far too many. Um, So it really allows, what the studies do show is that it allows the nervous system to move into that parasympathetic, that rest, digest and repair. And I actually did a episode on earthing and grounding with Matthew Titmus, who is a shaman. Um, We did episode 158 together where we talked about it. We talked about the study that shows that grounded people it reduces their nighttime cortisol um, and they get more time in that deeper part of sleep, resting, recovering, repairing. And that's so good for Alzheimer's and dementia prevention, uh, cleaning out the brain, reducing brain fog, focus, and all of those things pertain to weight loss because the, the way that your brain is set up for the day informs how you will behave throughout the day, right? It means the emotional eating is less likely to happen or you'll have more control over it. It means that at morning tea, when you smell the waft of the bakery, you're less likely to respond to it. You know, you're more likely to have confidence in situations where you would just eat or drink to be socially approved of, where you can lay down a boundary and say, hey, this is, you know, I'm just going to have this drink. Is that cool? You know? Mind your own business. <laughs> you might not say that, but you might just be confident in, in taking the sparkling water and being like, no, I'm cool with this. You know, I'm just going to do this. You guys do that. Enjoy it. Go nuts. This is what I'm going to do. So, number one to fixing your sleep is reducing your cortisol, particularly of an evening. And the other things that factor into this are, of course, meditation, breath work, um, just connecting with friends and family. Very, very important. Removing the cortisol spiking you know, experiences that happen in that later part of the evening as well. And I'm going to talk a little bit about those in a moment when we talk about dopamine. But that's number one. Number two, intermittent fasting. And you're probably like, oh, Maddie, you're such an intermittent fasting guru, advocate, charlatan. (laughs) I am huge about it because intermittent fasting is something humans have done since the dawn of time. And you will notice if you've ever worked with me or you work with me in the future that my default for a baseline of health and wellness is to do what humans have always done. Um, It's only in the last, you know, hundred-ish years that technology has really sent us off the beaten track. Yes, in in, in going off that path, you know, onto a beaten track rather, Going down that beaten track has definitely provided useful findings, discovered technologies that really help us how to figure out how to, you know, hack the system and do things faster and more radically and in different ways. But I would argue at this point, that path has caused more problems than it's helped us be able to solve. And many of the problems that we can now solve because of amazing technology were created because we don't do what humans were always meant to do. <laughs> Hashtag Maddie's a hippie. <laughs> So intermittent fasting, we've always done it. We've always done it. But the way I want you to think about it in regards to sleep is to think about the fact that obviously your gut, your gastrointestinal system, gums to bum, teeth to anus, that is the system that breaks down your food you know, switches digestion on, pulls it apart, uh, turns it into a liquid as much as it can and uh, it assimilates into the bloodstream and into the body and goes where it needs to go. That's a huge job when you think about it. Like if you think about how big your digestive system is, like I said, from gums to bum, that's a significant portion of your human body. That's a lot, right? So if that entire system, and not that it's all engaged at the same time, but if that system is working and operating and having to go through its individual stages with food you've eaten at the same time you're trying to sleep, well, it's no surprise that sleep is interrupted or disrupted because your body's trying to do a significantly major task at the same time, right? And the other thing is too is that when you sleep, your body temperature actually drops. However, you can't drop that body temperature if you're digesting because if you drop the temperature, then digestion can't happen effectively. So, you've got this situation and you might remember a time where this happened where you laid down at night uh, and you were, you know, you were full. It was a night where you were, you know, you'd maybe had a few drinks or you'd had a a bit to eat. Even if you didn't overeat, it might just be really late at night that you ate and you go to bed and it's not really hot at night, but you find yourself tossing and turning or flicking the doona on or the duvet for, you know, doona's showing the the inner bogan in me when I use that word. Um, You grew up using that word and then I spent 
uh, nine years of my adult life dating a British woman um, who was like, don't use that crass language. Okay, she didn't quite say that. But <laughs> but she always pulled me up on Duna and said, say duvet, say duvet. I'm like, all right, all right, all right. So duvet. You might find yourself throwing the duvet off and then on and then you're hot and cold and hot and cold. And this, what's happening is this body temperature regulation is, issue. Your thermostat is out because... Your body is trying to compete between bringing the temperature down to sleep because you need to drop the body, core body temperature a couple of degrees to sleep. And then your digestive system's like saying, hang on, hang on, what are you doing? Don't put the temperature down yet. Bring it back up. Bring it back up. We've got to digest this meal. And you've got this fluctuation between hot and cold, hot and cold, awake, not awake, deep sleep, no deep sleep, because you can't really do the successful digestion whilst also in deep sleep. We want these two things to happen separately because one is always going to take away from the other. If you manage to hit deep sleep, it's highly likely you're not going to digest correctly. It's highly likely the assimilation of nutrients is going to be less than if you were awake and sitting up. Um, And you might get to a situation where you that leads to bloating, constipation, uh, and gut issues. And, and you might you know go to the toilet and see in amongst your poop is undigested food. This could be a factor, right? So going back to the intermittent fasting thing, is that if, if we think of intermittent fasting as a time that we agree on or that you agree within yourself um, that you finish eating at the end of the day, kind of like a food curfew, but I don't want you to think about it in a way that is restrictive. Like, I can't eat after this time. Like, don't think like that child, you know, that inner child that's like, well, I'm not allowed to eat after this because I'll get fat. You know, like, we don't want to have that kind of, like, little parrot on our shoulder being like, nope, you're not allowed to eat. As soon as we get into that, we're in fad diet culture mentality and we're, we're screwed, basically, because that inner child's going to win. It's going to win at some point. Um, so, we have to be like, we have to come to an agreement. I think that's a much healthier way to think about it. An agreement that at a particular time of the day, for most of the days of the week, this is where we wrap up eating. And if you've uh, done the successful nutrition throughout the day, then you'll that, that agreement will be easy. It will be not about restriction or deprivation because you will have satiated and nourished your body with the appropriate nutrients from all the way from when you first ate to the meal that you've just finished or the snack that you've just finished. So that agreement will be easy because you'll have nourished your body. You'll know that you haven't nourished your body correctly if that agreement becomes uh, feeling like a bit of a dictator. And it's like afterwards you're battling hunger and you're battling not eating more at the fridge or the. And so that's a clear sign of two things um, not enough nutrition. Protein is one, but also a particular group of micronutrients. The other is that you don't have a successful strategy for emotional eating management. Now, that's okay. You're totally normal. Everyone I've worked with has learnt very rapidly that emotional eating controls their world much more than they ever knew. Um, and so, it's okay that you don't have a strategy for that. But that is something that also needs to be gotten on top on top of because if it's not, then we'll forever be driven by our emotions and not be in the driver's seat of our own health. So, intermittent fasting in this way is useful because it means we pull back that time from eating a little, you know, a few hours, ideally three hours, you know, if you can get three hours in before you wrap up eating and dinner, that's when we start to see some good stuff happen, right? Um, So, start there. But currently, if you're at an hour, remember one tweak a week, move it back 30 minutes, spend a week there, move it back 30 minutes, spend a week there and progress until you're about three to four hours before bed. Um, You also obviously don't want to go to bed super hungry because that's going to wake you up in the night. So again, this is the balance of your emotions uh, and your nutritional intake throughout the day. So work on that so that you can create space. And there is a difference between hunger and emptiness, by the way. Okay, so just because you don't feel stuffed, and this is one of the problems that's been created by the industrial revolution of the food industry, is that people eat so regularly and so often, they actually can't differentiate the difference between feeling empty and feeling hungry. There's a significant difference uh, and you need to sort of train your body into that, into understanding what each of those means. So, you don't want to get go to bed super hungry because obviously that's not going to be good, but it's okay to not feel stuffed. It's, it's very good actually to not feel like you're full or your body's overwhelmed or you're in this insulin blood sugar haze where your body is just like processing. You know what I mean? You want to stay, ideally you want to stay sitting up. Um, with your not necessarily standing up, but sitting up, leg cro- legs crossed to allow that digestion to happen uh, before you actually hit the sack. Okay, the sack being not losing a job but going to bed 
with a duvet. <laughs> so intermittent fasting is good. So you can create a time at the end of the day that you can wrap up your food, allow space for digestion, and then go to sleep without a digestive burden that will interrupt that sleep. All right, number three is practice dopamine fasting. You're probably like, Maddie, what the hell is that? Dopamine fasting. So we're in a world where we're run by our dopamine, right? Sugary foods, bliss point foods, social media, sexualized advertising and marketing, porn, medals for everybody. All of these different types of things allow everyone to feel good, happy feelings as often as possible. And guess what? That's not a good thing. It's not a good thing to be firing your dopamine at all hours of the day. This is why over-consuming sugar is so easy for so many people and obesity is so huge because it makes people feel good for a short amount of time. It fires off a dopamine path, uh, signal and, and message and hormonal response and our brain and body love dopamine. In fact, I would say most of the people listening to this are dopamine addicted and guess what? Also not your fault because... The revolution, the industrial revolution and science has learnt how to hack your biology and hack your brain so that it can sell you stuff and make more money so well and so rapidly that we haven't had time to evolve for the, the human species to evolve a mechanism that allows us to regulate our input of dopamine stimulating experiences. And so... That's why social media is so successful. They literally have floors of people over there in Silicon Valley uh, that are psychological engineers. They understand psychology so profoundly that they can create algorithms and uh, graphics and images and um, designs for their apps so that it triggers your FOMO every second of the day. You can't stand to not have your phone with you. Um, it reminds you every, every time there's a little update and you open it because you get a micro dose of dopamine. So if you can follow this, this pattern throughout your life of all the things that uh, produce dopamine, we're talking Netflix, we're talking Facebook, we're talking sugar, we're talking donuts, we're talking fast food, we're talking porn. And I know you've heard me say that and you're probably like, uh, Maddie's mentioned porn a couple of times here without really going into it. The statistics around porn consumption are absolutely monstrous. Now, the men and women, there's like women are not excluded from this at all. Like to the point, it's not just like five or six or seven percent. Um, that many years ago, when I did a lot of research into this space, then. 57% of American women said that they were addicted to porn. I don't know what the, the, the stats are currently, but that was probably eight years ago, nine years ago, 10 maybe, something like that. Point is that would have gone through the absolute roof because in that 10 years, the amount that technology has been used in order to hack our dopamine is exponential. So that's, that's one of those things. So all of these things that are in your life, I want you to start finding the patterns, okay? Because this will start giving you some information as to how much you are driven by things outside of your own body and, and that you're always moving towards something that will automatically put your dopamine on autopilot. Now, this is not a good thing. Why? Because it means you are not in the driver's seat of your own health or your own life and you're being owned. You're literally being owned by social media companies or porn companies or insert dopamine producing company, gaming, TV shows, Netflix, food, sugar, and we get to the end of the day and because we're stressed and tired as well leading up to sleep, we've, we're, we're so susceptible to needing more dopamine because we've worn out those pathways to the point that, that even a little uh, uh, dopamine hit is not enough. It gets to the point where we're addicted because just like every addict, a little bit is not enough. And all of these platforms and all of these foods, they just give us a little bit. So we go back for more, we go back for more, we go back for more, we go back for more. Now, this leads to you sitting in bed, scrolling on your phone, watching Netflix until you fall asleep, doing things that spike your, uh, your dopamine until you basically pass out. Hey, hey, my listeners, what's up? If you're enjoying the episode thus far, please consider writing a review and dropping in five stars on the Apple podcast page of this show as it really does help the visibility of the podcast to guide other people to find it. And as well, it helps other curious people just like yourself prior to tuning into the show to see whether or not this podcast is a good fit. And I, of course, hope that it is. And so that's really the best way to support our work and what we do here on the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. Oh, and I also love seeing you share the episode on Twitter Instagram or Facebook and I often reshare those posts so be sure to give me a tag 
at Matty Lansdowne. Okay, let's get back into the episode. Now, what does this mean for sleep? This means that you're engaging in activities in the lead up to sleep, just like how I mentioned before, if you eat too late, there's a cost. It means that you're sitting in front of screens, watching Netflix, whatever, all that, you know, that list of things I just mentioned, to the second that you pass out, right? Most of those things are going to involve screens and unnatural lighting. This tells your brain that it's daytime, meaning that the melatonin in your brain that is the sleep hormone is not being produced. It's not because it should come on slowly as you slowly fall as, get sleepy and fall asleep. But if you're staring at screens or involved in this dopamine addiction stuff, then you've got a situation where you're putting the wrong information into your body that tells your body it is not time to sleep because you've got light coming into your optical cavity, into your optical nerve that sends information to the brain that says you've got to be awake. Right, So, you can see how the sleep hormone is connected to your dopamine addiction because the dopamine addiction leads to behaviors that create lighting situations that tell your brain that it's daytime when it's actually late at night. Okay, And the same thing with food, right, is that food is also a part of this dopamine cycle. Now, it doesn't obviously produce the screen result, but the point is that all of these things are involved in producing dopamine and therefore a set of behaviors that don't lead to healthy sleep uh, and obviously lead to weight gain, uh, gut health issues, issues in your relationship, yeah, marital issues, sex issues, because guess what? When you've got such rapid sources of dopamine, your partner loses their ability to affect your dopamine levels. It should be incredibly satiating from a dopamine happiness standpoint to kiss your partner, to hug your partner, to see your partner again at the end of the day, uh, to, you know, to have sex with your partner. But so many people are addicted to their artificial realities uh, by the, with the food that we eat and the, the worlds we go into within our phones and our, our Netflix series, that even the human in front of you is no longer fulfilling, right? And this, this is devastating. This is terribly sad. So, one of the things you can do is practice dopamine fasting. And what does that mean? So, it's kind of like intermittent fasting, but we're going to go dopamine fasting. So, dopamine fasting is... you. First, I want you to start by identifying all the things in your day that produce dopamine. The things you go towards because they make you feel happy or they make you feel like, you know, this is pretty good. I like this. And remember, I know a lot of people will say, Facebook doesn't make me happy, Maddie. But why can't you put it down? Right? Why can't you stop doing it? Why can't you, you know, all those things that have control over you, they are things that produce dopamine in your body that you need to get away from. Why can't you put your phone down? Why do you get anxious when you don't have a computer in your pocket? Isn't that a bizarre concept when you think about it? Like, why do I feel strange when the phone, when my, my, the entire world's information is not in my pocket? That sounds incredibly burdensome to me. (laughs) However, I only say that because I've engaged in dopamine fasting, right? So, what is dopamine fasting? So, I want you to start small, one tweak a week. You know the deal. So, I want to start before bed, putting your phone down. No, not just down, off. But start with down five minutes before you go to bed. And then move to 10 minutes. And this also means turning off Netflix to turn off all the screens. Five minutes before bed, right? Start practicing that. Start practicing not turning your phone on immediately in the morning. And now everybody says, Maddie, but I use my phone as an alarm. Well, guess what? This is one of the ways that technology has fucked us because we should not be using your phone, which then means that the second you wake up, you begin your dopamine addiction instantly, reading all the bullshit news and all the negativity and reading how, you know, even today you're not going to be good enough for all of your friends because you're looking at their highlight reel, right? Go and buy an actual alarm clock. Or another thing is to put your phone on flight mode and put it in another room or in the bathroom so that you actually have to get up. So, something has to happen. However, I would strongly urge that you buy an actual alarm clock uh, so that the phone can at some point leave the bedroom. But I want you to start with putting the phone down 5 minutes, 10 minutes, 15, 30 minutes before bed, 60 minutes before bed. so that you and build this up over time, it won't happen quickly. And the same with other things. If you've got porn in your life, you know, I want you to start practicing, you know, having greater times in between the times that you watch that. I want you to practice engaging with your partner without other stimulation, without phones. Make sure that you, you know, when you have a conversation with your partner at the end of the day, there's a rule. There's no phones in this conversation, there's no TV. We spend 
10, 15, 20 minutes, whatever, just with each other. Or when you go and catch up for coffee with a friend or, or your partner, that it's an agreement. Phones go in your partner's bag. <laughs> that's what happens for me. Phones go in the bag. You know what I mean? Or that's not, not at the minute, but that's what we used to do back in the day when uh, was, you know, doing the whole full legit relationship thing. It's, it's super healthy. It's super healthy. And it's part of this dopamine fasting because you start reducing the amount of inputs you get every day and your receptors and your brain gets used to less dopamine. And in fact, the good thing is, is you don't just want to deprive yourself. You want to shift over to more meaningful, productive versions of dopamine. And what I mean by that is actual interactions and gratitude for the person that's in front of you. Respect that person by paying them attention right? Be present. Go and do something that requires work. A dopamine hit um, from an Instagram story is worth about 0.01 seconds and then you're already deficient again, right? So, but when you go and work on something and you do something productively or focus on your work for 45 minutes, put a timer on, turn your phone off for 45 minutes, just say, I'm going to do this task and then just do it and work on it and then you'll feel good at the end. You'll have dopamine as a result of getting through it or your workout. Only use Spotify, Get rid of the other apps. You can use app blockers. I use one called Freedom. It's incredibly useful. I turn everything up, block all websites, block all apps except Spotify so that I can listen to music during my workout. And then when I pull my phone out, when I'm on autopilot, I'm like, oh, I can't even get into it. That's right. Anyway, and this is all part of practicing. So practice dopamine fasting. And remember, you've got to catch yourself. Don't replace one dopamine thing that you've removed with another because <laughs> we're not winning at the game, right? We have to actually create space between dopamine hits and we have to make those dopamine hits worth more. This will have a huge impact on your sleep because you'll start pulling away those dopamine-consuming behaviors and technologies from the time you fall asleep, which will have a massive impact on the way in which you fall asleep, which is great for everybody because you getting better sleep is good for your health, good for your weight loss, good for all of the things, and you'll wake up more refreshed, which is good for all of the people around you too. So, (laughs) that's number three. Number four is early morning sunlight. So, this is going to help fix your sleep, which sounds weird because it's like, hang on, Maddie, that's after the sleep. What do you mean? This is because it sets your circadian rhythm up successfully. What is a circadian rhythm? So, circadian rhythms are your body's connection with its biological environment. And what I mean by that is the up and down of the sun, the 24-hour cycle of Mother Earth and the sun and the moon. Um, And so, Believe it or not, but your body knows what roughly what time it is based on the information that it collects from the environment around it. I don't mean consciously, as in like you consciously sit down and go, oh, well, the sun's at this point in the sky, so it must be this, and oh, the moon's there, so it must be this. I mean totally unconsciously. Your body collects this data from the environment and figures out where approximately in the day it is and then it sets your metabolism up. If you go and get early morning sunlight, it synchronizes your body with the cycle of the planet and that means that you optimize your body for a normal functioning through the day and through the evening. Um, And so, remember I said earlier that we need a little bit of cortisol to get out of bed. So, the good thing that early morning sunlight does is when it enters our skin and our our receptors and our eyes is that it actually spikes uh, cortisol and it reduces, it, it shuts down the melatonin production, which is the sleep hormone. Um, unnatural light is disruptive to our circadian rhythm. So, it's not the same as getting up and turning on a insanely and unnaturally bright white light. That's a bit of a tongue twister right there. Um, but it's not quite the same. So, you want to, the first thing you do when you get up is that you want to go to a window, open up the curtains and the blinds and look into the sky. Like, don't stare, you know, be responsible. Don't stare into the sun. You know, there's, it's one thing to get a, a healthy dose of cortisol. It's another thing to go blind. So, <laughs> don't be doing that. But look into the, into the sky, look into the blue sky or the cloudy sky, whatever's going on and Open, really open your eyes. Um, allow that to happen. You might walk out onto the balcony. You might walk to the front or the backyard with a cup of coffee, whatever it looks like for you. But get your skin and your eyes out and consuming this natural light. The other thing is that with this natural sunlight, it spikes serotonin. So, serotonin is a feel-good uh, neurotransmitter. Um, it makes us feel good. We like serotonin. It's part of the happiness experience. Um, and so, The interesting thing that it allows us to do is it builds, the more serotonin we have is that throughout the days, it builds a thing called sleep pressure. And what that means is like it builds up this feeling uh, in us and it's actually actually a molecular thing that happens that 
means that we fall to sleep easier. So it's like if you have a happier life, you have deeper sleep. How great's that? Um, so we want to, we want to spike the serotonin in the morning and kick it off with good, positive, fulfilling, deeply fulfilling and nourishing experiences with our work, with clients, with friends, with whatever it is, with the things we engage with. Uh, and we might even uh, manufacture scenarios that help us produce these happy hormones uh, because the beautiful thing is too is that not only does it build sleep pressure and mean that falling to sleep is easier, but it reduces cortisol later in the day, which obviously, as we touched on in point one, also is useful for falling asleep. Like cortisol is basically the opposite to sleep hormone. (laughs) If there's anything that's going to cause you sleep issues, it's going to be cortisol and or adrenaline. And so producing serotonin as a result of the sunlight helps with that. Now, large doses of melatonin, some people try and hack the system uh, and they have take large doses of melatonin. uh, Like nurses do that, night shift workers do that and they supplement melatonin. There's, there's a catch. And anyone that's ever asked me about melatonin has heard this answer before. Your body quickly shuts down its own production of melatonin if you start supplementing it. The same can happen with cortisone. If you, you probably know from talking to doctors and therapists that if you get too many cortisone injections, your body's own ability to manage that situation uh, shuts down. Same thing happens with melatonin. Now, this is why you can get dependent on these massively unnatural and immediate doses of melatonin uh, because it essentially wears out your melatonin receptivity. Uh, And so, it basically gets tired. And so, you get to the point where even if your body is producing melatonin, you've worn out the receptivity of the receptors. uh, And so, there's not really any information going back and forth. So, you end up at night in this scenario where you're bloody tired but you can't quite get to sleep, right? And so, this, it could be why. You could be could have been through a phase where you took too much melatonin, you didn't wean off it, you didn't wean onto it, um, you took it for too long. Um, you know, this can be part of the problem, not the only part of the problem because obviously with this comes cortisol issues uh, and the dopamine stuff and eating stuff, but this is, can be a big part of it. So, when we talk about circadian rhythms and getting that early morning sunlight, this sets our system up to be able to build that sleep pressure and then release melatonin accordingly of an evening. However, it can be messed up by taking too much melatonin supplement supplementally. Uh, the other thing that can really be good in this space as well is working out in the morning uh, and particularly outdoors uh, because you get that sun, you also you spike that cortisol and you kind of hack that system and it really resets your body. So, when that, that morning sunlight comes in, it goes into a part of the brain called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's kind of not well understood yet because it's a really deep, complex part of the brain, but we do know that it sets up your metabolism and your metabolic uh, standards for the way that your body will function for the day based on that time point. So, it's really, really good to make sure you get that on, get that information into your skull <laughs> as accurately as possible. And by accurate, I mean the time that the sun comes up. This doesn't mean after this podcast, you should get up at the crack of dawn. You still need your seven and a half to nine hours. And I would argue that's the most important bit. Um, however, quality and timing is secondary to that. Not Not important, but probably next on the list. And so, when you do wake up, go straight to the window, crack it open, get the sun in your face. All right. That's number four. (laughs) Number five. All right. The last one is your sleep environment. So, your sleep environment. So, this is really important because how you do anything is how you do everything. And that is a real thing. Um, you'll start, and that, like the dopamine thing I pointed out before, if you start looking for the way that you go about things or the things that you, you crave or want in all areas of your life, you'll start seeing that there's a lot of dopamine patterns everywhere for you, right? Uh, and so, the reality is that you've got to create a good sleep environment because if you don't, then you're in a situation where your sleep quality is going to reflect the environment that you're sleeping in. And here, after you're done listening to this episode, I'd recommend that you go and check out episode 63 called Cheap and Easy Sleep Hacks. This is a big one for your sleep environment, Um, but I'll give you uh, the Coles notes here, all right? Sleep environment. A lot of people's bedrooms are chaos, utter chaos, crap everywhere, photos everywhere, heaps of things on their bedside table, um, heaps of things on the floor, stacks of clothes everywhere. This reflects your internal world. Um, And this is why the very famous and successful psychologist, Jordan Peterson, when he talks about transforming your life and making yourself into a better person, the number one thing is to make your bed each day. And that's because 
the way that you start the day and the way that you leave the environment that you were just in really sets up your mind for the way that you will move forward. And if you go all the way around to the end of the day, if you walk into an organized bedroom with an organized bed, this is going to mean that sleeping is easier because it's not chaos and clutter just like your mind. Your internal world reflects your external world and vice versa. It's this like never-ending loop of like, is it the room or is it me Um, going back and forth, right? So, the first thing I would say is declutter and clean your bedroom and agree with your partner that you will start making the bed every day and keeping the room at a particular standard. Remove the stuff off your bedside table, put it away, put it in a drawer, get it organized and get it out of sight. Your room should be a sacred tranquil and relaxing place. Now, for those people that live in share houses, it is a little more challenging. I I did share housing for 12 years of my life and it's difficult. It's difficult. That's why I now live in my own apartment because it's just utter chaos to live your entire life from one one room. That's not good for your soul, for your sleep. And if your sleep's not right, you know that that's going to lead in the long term to all sorts of metabolic risk factors and disease factors and, of course, gaining weight and diabetes and that type of thing. So, We need to sort out the cleanliness. The other thing is airflow. So, in an ideal world, we want to have a window open or at the very least a fan moving in the room so that air is circulating because obviously we breathe in, we breathe out uh, CO2, carbon dioxide, and the thing we want is oxygen. However, if we've got the room sealed up, which sometimes you have to in a city, a lot of the times my room is sealed up because I live in a city and noise is the thing I'm escaping, but we have to at least have a fan going. So, I've usually got the ceiling fan going. Um, And even if it's just, you know, a a pedestal fan or whatever fan on its lowest setting, having air flow through the room so you can make sure that each breath of air or oxygen is actual oxygen. You're getting as much of the, the fresh oxygen into your nose and your mouth and your lungs that's really good. Um, if you can have a window open and put earplugs in, that's awesome. As long as obviously there's not street light coming in because street light p- causes the same problem that we talked about in dopamine addiction section with um, the issues with unnatural lighting screens and messing up your metabolism because it's sending the wrong information in. So, there's a hierarchy of priorities here. So, open the window if there's no unnatural light coming in. Uh, really important and make, and get that airflow moving, moving through. You can even buy mouth tape as well to make sure that the oxygen you're breathing goes through your nose and not your mouth. Believe it or not, we were meant to breathe through our noses. And the fact that many people fall asleep and breathe through their mouth is actually a consequence of the last hundred years of poor nutrition uh, and and unhealthy mothers giving birth to unhealthy babies for generation, a couple of generations now. And our bodies are changing. They're warping into things that aren't healthy and aren't doing what they're meant to do. And breathing through our mouths is one of those things. So, whether you're asleep or not, Practice breathing through your nose, through your workout, through sitting at your desk, through doing everything. Maybe not talking, but (laughs) you know what I'm saying. Start practicing and it'll feel weird at the start and you might feel like you're not even getting enough oxygen in. It's because we need to work on those pathways and get that old memory of breathing through your nose back. Um, The next thing, remove screens. This was an obvious one that was coming. Get all the screens out of your room. Get the TV. That's no longer acceptable. That's no longer acceptable if you care about your health get the screens out. That includes your phone. So, after you've practiced and you've bought your alarm clock and you've got, you know, you started practicing pushing out the time you turn your phone off by 5, 10, 15, 30 minutes, when you go to bed, there's part of your bedtime routine needs to be putting that phone in another room behind a closed door. It's important, really important. Mine goes in the kitchen cupboard up above my head so that it's like out of sight, out of mind. And the reason I do that is so that I can go as long as I can the next day without seeing it to remind me that I haven't looked at it, to le- which leads to me turning it on and dropping my productivity through the floor. So, it's different because obviously we need our phones for different things. So, different jobs will require different circumstances and different needs will mean that you need to turn it on at different times. However, I would encourage you to practice pushing out that time in the morning as well. But the primary thing here is your sleep environment. So, it's about removing those screens out of the room. Next one, clean sheets because everybody just enjoys when the sheets have been made, the bed's been freshly made and you want to have a positive association with getting into bed and feeling snug and you know, having like that feeling that this is a safe, happy place. You're more likely to reduce cortisol in that situation because you feel happy and safe, right? 
We want to get cortisol is such a major issue for everybody's weight loss journey. And this is just a tiny little thing you can do that just one of those little, you know, life's little pleasures, clean sheets and a freshly made bed. So do that regularly. Um, and look, I actually need to take that advice of cleaning my sheets more regularly because, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a bachelor. I'm just living the high life. But that's an important thing to do because if you've got chaos with work and chaos with kids and challenging relationship stuff and, you know, the mother-in-law or your mother this or whatever, you want to have life's little luxuries to look forward to and this is one of them. And the final one I've got is get your alarm clock. I've already said it, but get an alarm clock. You really need to get that alarm clock So, and ideally a healthy alarm clock. What do I mean by that? I mean not one that shocks the shit out of you the second that you that it goes off. You want one that nurtures you awake. Some people think they need the shock, but it's really detrimental to have that shot of fear and massive spike of cortisol and, and more importantly, a massive and unnecessary spike of adrenaline first the minute that you wake up when you're in absolute delirium. You want to practice waking up in a healthy environment. We want the bedroom to be a good thing all round. And of course, somewhere in there as well is have good sex, you know, fulfill your sleep environment with good things. And that also helps you fall to sleep. Another really healthy and fulfilling dopamine experience, orgasms for everybody. (laughs) Although that might cut your sleep time down. It's a worthy thing to pursue. (laughs) So that is my five big tips for you to fix your sleep. Now, again, this is not an exhaustive list. It doesn't mean that this is it forever, but I would encourage you to start working on all of these things. And remember, not all of them will work for everybody and not all of them are doable for everybody because like me, you might live in a city or you might live near a train line or you might live near somewhere where it's super light um, or you might not have an alarm clock yet. Put it on the to-do list though or you might not have a fan in your room yet. Buy one, of, buy one of those new fans that are basically you can't even hear on their lowest setting, you know? So, buy earplugs. That's another thing that you can do that's really good. I wear earplugs most nights um, and it feels weird in the beginning, but it's really useful. And earplugs, I would say, get the, um, the rubber ones that are for swimming, the ones that are the waterproof ones. They, they don't come out if you roll around in the bed and they're massive. They feel like fill your entire ear cavity. It's uh, highly recommend, highly recommend. Um, yeah, do what you got to do. But start here, listen to episode 63 after this one and you might want to listen to the grounding episode with Matthew Titmus at episode 158. And you know the deal. If you've enjoyed this episode, then please uh, take a screenshot, share this into social media, or more importantly, share this episode specifically with a friend or family member that you think will benefit. Maybe they've been on a weight loss journey or maybe they've been on a health journey and their doctor hasn't spoken to them about the importance of sleep. I truly believe sleep is the core, the core foundational variable that we need to master and work on in order to improve our health and improve the results we get on a weight loss journey or any type of disease management journey. It is essential and for disease prevention, long-term, longevity, all that kind of stuff. Sleep, 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 sleep. Get more of it. Start prioritizing it so you can get more of it and I want to hear about it. So, share this with peeps. If you love this episode as well and you love the show, it would be super helpful for you to jump on uh, and give us a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple. Please, five stars are really beneficial. It helps it helps us go up in the rankings so that more people can hear episodes just like this one. Uh, and, you know, we want to we keep growing the Healthy Friends family. And the only way that I can actually do that is by having you help. <laughs> so, if you get anything out of this, then let's help other people get something out of it too. All right, team, I'll catch you on the next one. Thanks for listening to the How to Not Get Sick and Die podcast. If you love this episode and health information is your thing, then please consider subscribing to the show. And when you're done, head over to iTunes, Google Podcast, or whichever app you use. And we'd be grateful if you could leave us a five-star rating and write a review sharing your opinion on the show as it really helps the podcast grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you on the next episode. Whilst the presenter that feature on this podcast endeavour to provide accurate information, it cannot possibly take into account your individual circumstances, and therefore the content on this podcast provided by any of the speakers is not intended as advice in any way for any individual, and should not be a replacement for professional medical or health advice of any nature. Always seek advice regarding your personal situation from a qualified medical professional.